Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 342, recorded June 25th, 2023. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I am Brian Aachen. And this episode is brought to you by Brian and me, us, our, our work. So support us, support the show, keep us doing what we're doing by checking out our courses over at Talk Python Training. We have a bunch, including a really nice PyTest course written by Brian. Check out the Test and Code podcast, the Patreon supporters. Brian's got a book as well in PyTest. You may have heard of this. So <laughs> please, if you check those things out, share them with your friends, share, recommend them to your coworkers. It really makes a difference. You can also connect with us on Mastodon. You'll see that over on the show notes for every episode. And finally, you can join us over at pythonbytes.fm slash live if you want to be part of the live recording. Usually, usually. Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific time, but not today. No, Brian, we're starting nice and early because, well, it's a vacation time. And, well, plum bum, I think we should just get right into it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> plum bum. Let's do it. Um, it's a new saying. It's, a, it's an expression. <laughs> plum bum. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. Yeah, I have no idea where this comes from. Um, but the uh, while I do know where it comes from, it was last week. Uh, last week we talked about uh, shells, and Henry Schreiner um, said, "Hey, you should check out Plumbum. Uh, it's kind of like what you're talking about, but also neat." So I did. Um, we were talking about shh. Oh right, before. we were talking about shh. Um, <laughs> don't don't tell anyone. <laughs> so Plumbum, it's a little easier to search for actually than shh. Um, so. What is it? It's a it's a Python library, and it's got um it's shell combinations. It's for interacting with your environment. And oh, there we go, Henry Schreiner, one of the maintainers. Um, so it, it's it's a a tool that you can install so that you can interact with your your operating system and file system and stuff like that, and all sorts of other things. And it's got a little bit a uh, little bit different style than uh, sh, um, but it. Uh, so I was taking a look at this kind of like a local command for one, uh, the basics are you like import from plumbum import local, and then you can run commands as if you were just running a shell, but you do this, um, uh, within your Python code. And there's also some convenience ones like sh has like ls and grep and things like that. But, um, but, but you, it, generally it looks like there's more stuff around how you operating operate with a shell normally things like piping so you can uh you know you can pipe one like ls to grep to word count or something like that to count files you can i mean there's other ways to do it within python but um if you're used to doing it in, in the shell just wrapping wrapping the same work in a python script why not um things like re yeah redirection work uh manipulating your working directory just all sorts of fun stuff to do with your shell, but through Python. You know, the pipe overriding the, you know, the pipe operator in Python override sort of actually in the language being the same as in the shell is a little bit like Pathlib doing the divide aspect, right? Like we're going to grab some operator and make it that it probably was never really imagined to be used for, but we're going to make it use it to so it looks like what you would actually you know the abstraction you're representing which is pretty interesting yeah and they could um like this example they have an example in the the readme of piping ls to grep to word count and they they like define that as a chain and if and it didn't even it doesn't even run it i don't think um it just defines this new sequence so you, so you can chain together uh script commands and if you print it so it has a uh 
uh, probably a, a stir or a repper um, implementation that shows you exactly what the, the all the pipe and the chaining was. So that's kind of a neat thing for debugging. And then when you actually run it, then it you call that thing like a function and it runs it. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it is. You can even do them inline, just put parentheses around them and kind of execute at the end. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, anyway, um, just a fun little quick shout out to Plumbum. Yeah, if you thought SH was cool last time, you might also check this out, right? They kind of play in similar spaces. Yeah, just one of the things I like about Python and the Python community is um, uh, this variety of different different libraries that might solve the same space but um, have a different flavor. Uh, you know, some people like chocolate, some people like vanilla. Well, I'm a big fan of caramel. So how about we talk about faster C Python? <laughs> okay. I'm not so sure. fa- the <laughs> faster C Python is, uh, they're really starting to show some results, right? Python 3.11 was 40% faster, I believe is, you know, roughly speaking, working with averages and all those things. And we've got 3.12 coming with more optimizations. And ultimately the faster CPython plan was you know, put together and laid out by Mark Shannon. And the idea was if we could make you know, improvements like 40% faster, but over and over again, because of you know, compounding sort of um, numbers there, we'll end up with a really fast CPython, a faster one you might say, in five releases, five times faster in five releases. And so you know, that started really with 3.10, we had 3.11, 3.12, not the one that's coming, but the one that's coming in a year and a few months, 3.11, they're laying out their work for that. And okay. it's looking pretty ambitious. Okay, so in 3.12, they're coming up with ways to optimize blocks of code. So in 3.11, stepping a little bit back, we've got the adaptive specializing interpreter or specializing adaptive interpreter. I don't have it pulled up in front of me, which order those words go in, but um, that will allow... CPython to replace the bytecodes with more specific ones. So um, if it sees that you're doing a float plus a float operation, instead of just doing word, we're doing an abstract plus, you know, is that is that a list plus a string? <laughs> is that an integer and a float? Is that actually a float and a float? And if it's a float and a float, then we can specialize that to do more specific, more efficient types of math and that kind of stuff, right? Okay. 3.12 is, is supposed to have... Um, uh, what they're calling the tier one optimizer. And so, which optimizes little blocks of code, but they're pretty small. And so one of the big things coming here in 3.13 is a tier two optimizer. So bigger blocks of code, as in something they're calling super blocks, which I'll talk about in just a second. Um, the other one that sounds really amazing is enabling sub interpreters from Python code. So we know about PEP, 554, this has been quite the journey and massive amount of work done by Eric Snow. And the idea is if we have a gill, then we have serious limits on concurrency, right? From a computational perspective, not from an IO one potentially. And, you know, I'm sitting here on my M2 Pro with 10 cores and no matter how much, you know, multi-threaded Python I write, if it's all computational, all running Python bytecode, I get, you know, one-tenth of the capability of this machine, right? Because of the gill. So the idea is, well, what if we could have each thread have its own gill? So there's still, sure, a limit to how much work that can be done in that particular thread concurrently, but 
it's one thread dedicated to one core and the other core gets its own other sub interpreter, right? That doesn't yeah. share objects in the same way, but they can like pass them around through certain mechanisms. Anyway, so this thing has, has been a journey, like I said, created 2017 and it has like all this history, uh, up until now. And, um, status is still says draft. And now the Python version, I think the pep is approved, but, and work has been done, but it's still in like, pretty early stages. So that's a pretty big deal is to add that. That's supposed to show up in um, 313. In, in 313 in, in Python code. And this is a big deal. I think that in 312, the work has been done so that it's internally possible. It's internally done, if I remember correctly. But there's no way to use it from Python, right? Like it's if you're a creator of interpreters, basically, you can use it. So now the idea is like, let's make this possible for you to do things like start a thread and give it its own sub-interpreter, you know, copy its objects over, let it create its own, and really do computational parallelism, hmm. guessing interaction with async and await and those kinds of things. And also uh, more uh, improved memory management. Let's see what else. Well, so I guess is. along along with that, we're going to have to have some tutorials or something on how to how to how do they sh the two sub-interpreters share information and. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we will. We will. I'm. What I would love to see is just you know on the thread object, give the thread object a use sub in isolating you know isolate sub interpreter or new sub interpreter equals true, and off it goes. That would be excellent. And then maybe pickles the object. I don't know. We we can see how how they come up with that. But this yeah. is this is good news. I think it's the kind of thing that's not that important necessarily for a lot of people, but for those who it is, it's like. You know, really, we want this to go a lot faster. What can we do here, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. That sounds complicated. Does it make it go faster? Yay, then do it. <laughs> well, and, you know, compared to a lot of the other alternatives that we've had for, I have 10 cores. Why can I only use one of them on my Python code without multiprocessing? This is one of those um, that doesn't affect single-threaded performance. It's one of those things that there's not a, a cost to people who don't use it. Right. Whereas right. a lot of the other types of options are like, well, sure, your code gets 5% slower, but you could make it a lot faster if you did a bunch more work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been a hard sell and also a hard line that Guido put in the, the sand saying like, look, we can't make regular non-concurrent Python slower for the sake of, you know, this more rare, uh, but sometimes specialized, right? Uh, concurrent stuff. So they've done a bunch of foundational work. And then the three main things are the tier two optimizer sub-interpreters for Python, and memory management. So the Tier 2 Optimizer, there's a lot of stuff that you kind of got to look around. So check out the the detailed plan. They have this thing called copy and patch. So you can generate like roughly these things called super blocks, and then you can implement, they're planning to implement basic super block management. And Ryan, you may be thinking, what are Duplo. these words you're saying, Michael? <laughs> Duplo. They're not those little Legos. No, they're big, big Duplos. <laughs> but that's kind of true. So they were optimizing smaller pieces, like little tiny bits, but you can only have so much of an effect if you're working on um, small blocks of code that you're optimizing. So a super block is a linear piece of code with one entry and multiple exits. It differs from an, a basic block in that it, um, it may duplicate some code. So they just talk about um, considering different types of things you might optimize. Uh, so I'll link over to, but there's a, a big, long discussion, lots of, lots of graphics <laughs> people could go check out. So yeah, they're going to 
add support to de-optim, um, add support for de-optimization of soup blocks, enhance the code creation, implement the specializer, and use this uh, algorithm called copy and patch. So implement the copy and patch machine code generator. You don't normally hear about a machine code generator, do you? No. But uh, either that sounds like a JIT compiler or something along those lines. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the goal. And reduce the time spent in the interpreter by 50%. If they make that happen, that sounds all right to me, just for this one feature. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Wow. Pretty good. And I talked a whole bunch about subinterpreters. Final thing, the profiling data shows that a large amount of time is actually spent in memory management and the cycle GC. All right. And while when Python, I guess, if you do, you know, 40% a bunch of times, it was maybe half as fast before, like, because remember, we're like a few years out working back on this plan. In 3.9, 3.8, maybe it didn't matter as much because a percent, as a percentage of where is CPython spending its time, it was not that much time on memory management. But as all this other stuff gets faster and faster, if they don't do stuff to make the memory management faster, it's going to be like, well, half the time is memory management. What are we doing? So they say, as we get the, the VM faster, this is only going to be a larger percent of our time. So what can we do? So do fewer allocations to improve data structures, for example, partial evaluation to reduce the number of temporary objects, uh, which is part of the other section of their work, and spend less time doing cycle GCs. This could be as simple as doing fewer calculations or as complex as implementing a new incremental cycle binder. Either way, it sounds pretty cool. So that's the plan for a year in a couple of months. Pretty exciting. I'm, I'm really happy that these uh, people are working on it. I am too. It's a team of, I think last time I counted, five or six people. There's a big group of them around Guido at Microsoft, but then also outside. Yeah. So for example, this was written by Mark Shannon, who's there, but also Michael Dropboom, who was at Mozilla, but I'm not, I don't remember where he is right now. We'll cool see. last name, Dropboom. Anyway, yes, <laughs> indeed. All right, over to you, Brian. Well, that was pretty heavy. I'm going to do kind of a light topic is we need more people to write blogs about Python. Um, it, it would help us out a lot, really. Uh, and uh, one of the ways you could do that is to just uh, head over and check out one of the recent articles from Julia Evans uh, about some blogging myths. Um, and I, I guess this is a pretty lighthearted topic, but uh, but also serious. But uh, we have some more fun um, f- fun stuff in the extras so don't worry about it um anyway so there's a few blogging myths and i I just wanted to highlight these because i think it's good to remember that you know these are just wrong so i'll just run through them quickly you don't need to be original you can write content that other people have covered before that's fine uh you don't need to be an expert um posts don't need to be 100 percent correct uh writing boring posts uh is bad so these are oh wait the myths are, the myth is you need to be original. That's not true. Uh, myth, you need to be an expert. Uh, posts need to be 100% correct. Also myth, all these are myths. Writing boring posts is bad. Um, boring posts are fine if they're informational. Uh, you need to explain every concept. Actually, that will just kill your audience if you explain every little detail. Uh, page views matter. Uh, more material is always better. Everyone should blog. These are all myths, according to Julia. And then she goes through a lot of the in in detail into each one of them. And I kind of want to like uh, hover on the first two uh, a little bit of you need to be original and you need to be an expert. Um, I think it's uh, we, we when we're learning 
uh, we're learning about the software, a new library or a new technique or something. Often I'm like, I'm reading Stack Overflow, I'm reading blog posts, I'm reading uh, maybe books, uh, who knows, I'm reading a lot of stuff on it. And you, uh, you'll you get all that stuff in, in your own perspective of how it really is. And then you, you can sort of like like the cheating book report you did in uh, junior high where you just like rewrote some of the encyclopedia but changed it don't do that um but it doesn't you don't have to come up with a completely new technique or something you can just say oh all the stuff i learned uh i'm going to put it together and and like write like my my workflow now or the process or just a little tiny bit it doesn't have to be long it can be a a short thing of like oh i finally got this it's way easier than i thought it was and Writing little little aha moments are great times to just write that down as a little blog post. Um, the other thing of uh, you don't need to be an expert is a lot of us got started blogging while we were learning stuff as a way to write that down. So I'm, you're definitely not an expert as you're learning stuff. So go ahead and write about it then. And it's a great way to, and that ties into it doesn't need to be 100% correct. As you get more traction in your blog, people will like let you know if you made a mistake. And in the Python community, Usually it's nice. Um, they'll they'll like mention, "Hey, this isn't quite right anymore," uh, and I kind of love that about our community. So, um, the, I want to go back to the original part: is you don't even have to be original from your own perspective. If you wrote about something like last year, go ahead and write about it again. If you think it's important and needs, and you sort of have a different way to explain it, you can write another blog post about a similar topic. So, yeah, I'm I totally agree. I also want to add a couple of things. Okay. I would like to add that your posts, the myth, your posts have to be long or like an article or you need to spend a lot of time on it, right? You know, the biggest example of this in terms of like success flying in the face of just really short stuff is um, John Gruber's Daring Fireball, right? Like this is an incredibly popular site and the entire articles are, it starts out with him quoting often someone else and that's like, two paragraphs, which is half the article and say, here's my thoughts on this. And, or here's something interesting. Let's, let's highlight it or, or something. Right. And my, my last blog post was four paragraphs and a picture, maybe five, if you count the bonus. Right. Um, I don't, not too many people paid attention to mine because the titles, you can ignore this post. So I'm, I don't know. I'm having a hard time getting traction with it, but. <laughs> um, I actually, I like it that you highlighted the John, that John Gruber uh, style. There's a lot of different styles of blog posts. And one of them is reacting to something instead of, because a lot of people have actually turned, you can either comment on somebody's blog or talk about it on Reddit or something, or you can react to it on your own blog. Um, and yeah. link and to it's it. still still link to it on Reddit or something. Yeah. Yeah. Not anymore. Can. Cause Reddit went private out of protest, but you know, somewhere else if you find yeah, another yeah. place. <laughs> or maybe post it on Twitter. No, don't do that. Let's uh, mastodon. Yeah, it's, it's getting uh, hard. <laughs> yeah. Funny. Um, I had another one as well, but oh yeah. So this is not a myth, but just another thing. You know, another uh, source of inspiration is if you come across something that it really surprised you. Like if you're learning, right? Kind of to add on, like I'm not an expert. If you come across something like wow, Python really it broke my expectations. I thought this was going to work this way, and it gosh, it's weird here. People, if it seems like a lot of people think it works this way, but it works in some completely other way. You know, that could be a cool little write-up. Um, also, you know, people might be searching, like, why does Python do this? <laughs> you know, they they might find your, quote, boring article and go, that was really helpful, right? So, yeah. I, I still remember way back um, when I started writing about uh, PyTest and unit tests and stuff, um, there was a, uh, a feature 
uh, a behavior of teardown functionality that uh, behaved different. It would like uh, uh, sort of the same in nose and unit test and then different in PyTest. And I, I wrote a post that said, maybe unit test is broken because I kind of like this PyTest behavior. And I got a reaction from some of the PyTest contributors that said, oh, no, we just broke. We just forgot, didn't test that part. So that's wrong. We we'll fix it. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, a, what a meta problem that um, PyTest didn't test a thing. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was a really corner case, but I'm kind of a fastidious person when I'm looking at sure. uh, how things work. Um, but the other thing I, I want to say is a lot of um, a lot of things written by you, uh, other people are old enough that they don't work anymore. If you're if you're following along with like a little tutorial and it doesn't work anymore because you know the language changed or the the library they're using is not supported anymore or something, that's a great opportunity to go. Well, I'll just kind of write it in my own language, but, or in my own style, but also make it current and to make it work this time. <laughs> so that's, that's good. <laughs> Indeed. As well. Anyway. Okay. Well, let's, let's go back to something more meaty. Uh, yeah. Something um, like AI. So I want to tell you about Jupiter AI, Brian. Jupiter AI is a pretty interesting, uh, a pretty interesting project here. It's a generative AI extension for Jupyter Lab. I believe it also works in Jupyter and IPython as just IPython prompt as well. And so here's the idea. There's there's a couple of things that you can do. So Jupyter has this thing called a magic, right? Where you put um, 2% in front of a command and it, it applies it to an extension to Jupyter, not, not trying to run Python code, but it says, let me find this thing. In this case, you say percent percent AI, and then you type some stuff. So that stuff you type afterwards then, you know, turns on a certain behavior for that particular cell. And so this AI magic, literally, it's percent percent AI, and then they call it a magic, or it is a magic. <laughs> so AMI, AI magic turns Jupyter notebooks into reproducible, is the interesting aspect, generative AI. So think if you could have chat GPT or open AI type stuff clicked right into your notebook. So instead of going out to one of these AI chat systems and say, I'm trying to do this, tell me how to do this, or could you explain that data? You just say, hey, that cell above, what happened here? <laughs> or I'm trying, I have this data frame. Do you see it above? Okay, good. Uh, how do I visualize that in um, a pie chart or some, you know, in those donut graphs using Plotly? And it can just write it for you as the next cell. Interesting. Okay. Interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, it it runs anywhere the IPython kernel works. So Jupyter Lab, Jupyter Notebooks, Google Colab, VS Code, probably PyCharm, although they don't call it out. And it has a native UI chat. So in Jupyter Lab, not Jupyter, there's like a, a left pane that has stuff. It has like your files and it has other things that you can do. And it will plug in another window on the left there that is like a chat GPT. So that's pretty cool. Another really interesting difference is this thing supports its model or platform agnostic. So if you like AI21 or Anthropic or OpenAI or SageMaker or Hugging Face, et cetera, et cetera, you just say, please use this model. And they have these integrations across these different things. So you, for example, you could be going along saying, I'm using OpenAI, I'm using OpenAI. That's a terrible answer. Um, let's, let's see, let's ask Anthropic the same thing. And then right there below it, you can use these different models and different AI platforms. 
and go, actually, it did really good on this one. I'm just going to keep using that one now for this this part of my data. Mm, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so how do you install it? You pip install Jupyter underscore AI. And that's it. It's good to go. And then you plug in, then you plug in um, like your various API keys or whatever you need to as environment variables. They give you an example here. So you would say percent percent AI space chat GPT, and then you type something like, please generate the Python code to solve the 2D Laplace equation in the Cartesian coordinates. Solve the equation on the square, such and such, with vanishing boundary conditions, et cetera. Plot the solution to matplotlib. Also, please provide an explanation. And then look at this. You go da 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 and down it goes. And you know you can see off it, off it shows you how to implement it. And that's only part of that's shown. You can also have it do graphics. Anything that it, it, those models will generate is HTML, just show up. So you could say, create a square using SVG with a black border and white fill. And then what shows up is not SVG commands or like little definition. You just get a square because it put it in HTML as a response. And so that showed up. You can even do LaTeX, like dash, dash F is math, generate a 2D heat equation. And you get this uh, partial differential equation thing wow. in, um, in LaTeX. <laughs> You can even ask it to write a, po a poem, whatever you do. But so the, that's one of the... Go, to go back to the poem one. Yeah, it says write a poem in the style of variable names. So you can have commands with variable, uh, insert variable stuff. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you can also, Jupyter has inputs and outputs. Like along the left side, there's like a, a nine and a 10. And those are like the order they were executed. You can say um, using input of nine, which might be the previous cell or something, or output of nine, go do, you know, take that and go do other things, right? Like kind of that's how I open this conversation. One of the really interesting examples that David Q pointed out, there's a nice talk that he gave and a link to in the show notes at High Data like a week ago, was he had written some code, two examples. One, he had written some code, a bunch of calculations and pandas, and then he created a plot, but the plot wasn't showing because he forgot to call plot.show. And uh, he asks one of the AIs, it depends, you know, you can ask a bunch depending which model you tell it to target. He said, why isn't, hey, in that previous cell, why isn't my plot showing? It said, because you forgot to um, call show. <laughs> so here's an example of your code above, but that works and shows the plot. That's pretty cool for help, right? Yeah, geez. Instead of going to Stack Overflow or even trying to copy that into one of these AIs, you just go, hey, that thing I just did, it didn't do what I expected. Why? Here's your answer. Not in a general sense, but like literally grabbing your data and your code. Two final things that are interesting here. The other, maybe three, uh, the other one is he had some code that was crashing. I can't remember what it was doing, but it was throwing some kind of exception and it wasn't working out. And so he said, why is this code crashing? And it explained what the problem was with the code and how to fix it, right? Hmm. So super, super interesting here. Um, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, we have that link yeah, in the show notes. Totally, yeah. yeah, the talk is really, really interesting. I'm trying to think. There's one other thing that, that was in that talk. It's like a 40-minute talk, so I, I don't remember all of it. Anyway, there's, there's more to it that goes on um, also beyond this. It's... It looks pretty interesting. If you live in Jupiter and you think that these these AI models have something to offer you, then this is definitely worth checking out. Um, Alvaro says, you know, as long as it doesn't hallucinate a, a non-existing package. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, 
I mean, that is the thing. What's kind of cool about this is it, like it puts it right into code, right? It just you could run it and see if that's it pretty cool. if it does indeed work and and do what it says. So anyway, that's was, that's our last. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, before we move away too much, I was listening to a, a NPR uh, a show about uh, talking about AI. And uh, somebody did a research, I think it was for the Times, the New York Times, um, a research project and found out that like there were, there were some, sometimes they would ask like, uh, when, what's the first uh, instance of this phrase showing up in the newspaper or something? And it would make up stuff. Uh, and even, and they'd say, well, you know, can you, what are those, you know, show those examples. And it would show snippets of fake articles that actually never were there. <laughs> <laughs> it did mean. that for uh that's crazy it did that for um legal proceedings as well and a lawyer cited those cases and got <laughs> sanctioned or whatever lawyers get when they do it wrong like, those, those are wrong um, yeah don't don't yeah. do that but I, also yeah. the the final thing that was interesting that i, I now remember that um he made me pause the thing brian is you can point it at a directory of files like um html files markdown files CSV file, just like a bunch of files that happen to be part of your project and you wish it had knowledge of. So you can say slash learn and point it at a subdirectory of your project. It will go learn that stuff in those in those documents. Oh, and then you can say, okay, now I have questions, right? Like, you know, if it learned some statistics about a CSV, the example that David gave was he had copied all the documentation for Jupyter AI over into there and it told it to go learn about itself. And then it did. And then you could talk to it about it based on the documentation. Oh. That's, huh. So if you got a whole bunch of research papers, for example, like, all right, learn those. Now I need to ask you questions about this astronomy study, okay? Uh, who, who, who studied this and what did, who found what, you know, whatever, right? Like these kinds of questions are pretty amazing. Yeah, and actually some of this stuff would be super powerful, especially if you could make it not, like keep all the information local, like, um, like, in, like, you know, internal company stuff, they, they don't want to like upload the, all of their source code into the cloud just so that they can ask it questions about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. The other one, um, was to generate starter projects and code based on ideas. So you can say, uh, generate me a Jupyter notebook that explains how to use matplotlib. Okay. Okay, I'm, and it'll come up with a notebook and it'll do, so here's a bunch of different examples and here's how you might apply a theme and it'll, it'll create things. And one of the things that they actually have to do is they use LangChain and AI agents to, in parallel, go break that into smaller things that are actually going to be able to handle and yeah. send them off to all be done separately and then compose them. So it'll say, oh, well, what's that problem? Instead of saying, what's the notebook? It'll say, give me an outline of how somebody might learn this. And then for each mo each step in the outline, that's a section in the the document that it'll go have the AIs generate those sections, and it's like a, a smaller problem that seemed to get better results. So anyway, this is a this is a way bigger project than just like maybe I can yeah. pipe some information to ChatGPT. There's like there's a lot of crazy stuff going on here. Um, the, the people who live in Jupiter might want to check out. It is pretty neat. Um, I I was. Uh, not around the Jupiter stuff, but I was thinking uh, that a lot of software work is the maintenance, not the writing it in the first place. So um, mm -hmm. what we've done is like taken the fun part of making something new and giving it to a computer <laughs> and we'll all be just like software maintainers at the afterwards. <laughs> exactly. We'll just be plumbers. 
<laughs> sewer overflowed again call the flower no <laughs> i don't want to go in well, there and also I'm, I'm just imagining like a whole bunch of new web apps showing up that are generated by like ideas and they yeah. kind of work but nobody knows how to fix them um but yeah. sure yeah. I, mean, I think that you're right and that that's going to be what's going to happen a lot but you technically could come to an existing notebook and add a a cell below it and go, I don't really understand. Could you try to explain what is happening in the line of, in the, the cell above? Yeah. And it, you know, it, it also has the possibility for making legacy code better. And if that's the reality, we'll see. Yeah. Hopefully it's a good thing. So cool. All right. Well, those are all of our items. That's the last one I brought. Any extras? I got a uh, couple extras. Um, uh, Will McCoogan and gang at uh, Textualize um, have started a YouTube channel. Um, and so far there's, uh, and some of these, I think it's a neat idea. Some of the tutorials that they already have, they're just walking through some of the tutorials uh, in video form at this point. Um, and there's three up so far of uh, stopwatch intro and uh, how to get set up and use Textualize. And, uh, you know, I, I like what they're doing over there and it's kind of fun. Uh, Another fun thing from I, I like it too because it's um you know textualize, rich is is a visual thing, but textualize is like a higher level UI framework where you've got docking sections and all kinds of really interesting UI things, and so sometimes learning that in a inter an animated yeah. active video form is really maybe better than reading the docs. Yep, and then uh, something else that they've done. So maybe uh, watch that if you want to try to build your own. Uh, a command line user, or text user, user interface, a TUI, as it were. <laughs> you you TUI. Um, uh, or you could take your command line interface and just pipe, uh, use uh, Trogon. All, Trogon? Tro, I don't know how you say that. T-R-O-G-O-N. It's uh, by uh, Textualize also. It's a new project. And the idea is you just, um, uh, I think you use it to wrap your own your own command line interface uh, tool and it makes a graphic or a text-based user interface out of it. There's a, a little video showing an example of a Trogon app applied to SQLite Utils, uh, which uh, has a whole bunch, SQLite Utils has a bunch of great stuff and now you can interact with or uh, interact with it with a GUI instead and that's kind of fun. Um, works around click, but they're, apparently they will support other libraries and languages in the future. So. Mm -hmm. interesting okay so yeah it's like you can pop up the documentation for a parameter while you're working on it in a little modal window or something looks looks interesting yeah well I'm, i was thinking along the lines of even uh like in a internal stuff it's uh, fairly uh, you're going to write like a make script or a build script or some different utilitarian thing for your your work group um if you use it all the time command line's fine but if you only use it like every uh, you know, once a month or every couple of weeks or something, it might be that you forget about some of the features and yeah, there's help, but having it as a GUI, if you could easily write a GUI for it, that's kind of fun. So why not? Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up a uh, completely different topic is uh, the June, 2023 release of uh, visual studio code uh, came out recently. Um, and I hadn't taken a look at it. I'm still, uh, I've installed it, but I haven't played with it yet. And the reason why I want to play with it, is uh, they've revamped the uh, test discovery and execution. So uh, apparently you can, uh, there were some glitches with finding tests sometimes. Uh, so I'll, I'm looking forward to trying this out. You have to turn it on though. You have to, um, 
there's so these this new test discovery stuff you have to uh go you have to like set a opt into flag um and the i just put the little snippet in our show notes so you can uh, just copy that into your settings file to try it out so um mm-hmm. yeah excellent I guess that's all i got do you have any extras i do i do um i have a report a report from the field brian so I had my 16-inch MacBook Pro M1 Max as my laptop, and I decided I just it's it's not really necessarily the thing for me. So I traded in and got a new MacBook Air 15-inch, one of those big, really light ones. And I just want to sort of uh, compare the two if people are considering this. You know, I have my Mini that we're talking on now with my big screen and all that, which is uh, M2 Pro is super fast. And I found like that thing was way faster than my my um, much heavier, more expensive laptop. Like, well, why am I dragging this thing around if it's if it's not really faster, <laughs> if it's heavy, has all these, you know, all these cores and stuff that are just burning through the battery, uh, even though it says it lasts a long time. It's like four or five hours was a, a good day for that thing. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna trade it in for uh, the, the new, a little bit bigger Air. And yeah, so far that thing is incredible. It's excellent for doing software development thing. The only thing is the screen's not quite as nice. Uh, but for me, that like I don't live on my laptop, right? I've got like a big dedicated screen. I'm normally at then I'm like out somewhere. So small is better, and it lasts like twice as long and the battery. So, and I got the black one, which is weird for an Apple device, but very cool. It, people say it's a fingerprint magnet and absolutely, but it's also a, a super, super cool machine. So if people are thinking about it, um, I'll give it a pretty, I'll give it like a 90% thumbs up. Um, the screen's not quite as nice. It's super clear, but it kind of is like washed out a little harder to see in light. But other than that, it's it's excellent. So there's my report. Huh. Traded in my expensive MacBook for an incredibly light, thin and often faster, right? When I'm doing stuff in Adobe Audition for audio or video work or a lot of other places, like those things that I got to do, like noise reduction and other sorts of stuff, it's all single threaded. And so it's it's like 20% faster than my $3,500 MacBook Pro Max thing. Hmm. Anyway, wow. And lighter and smaller, you know, all, all the good things. But you're still using uh, your... Uh... Your mini for some for some of your workload. Right? I I use my mini for almost all my work. Yeah, if I'm not out, then I usually or sitting on the couch, then it's all mini, mini, mini all the time. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Is it black on the outside also? Then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's it's cool looking. It's you can cool. throw a sticker yeah, on it, that and somebody to hide that it's Apple, and people might think you just have a Dell. They and, wouldn't know. That's yeah. right. Run parallels. You can run uh, uh, run Linux on it. They're like, oh, okay, <laughs> Linux got it. What is that thing? That's a weird. <laughs> Yeah, you could disguise it pretty easy if you want. Cool. Or just your sticker stand out better. You never know. All right, so if people are thinking about that, pretty pretty cool device. Um, but, Brian, if somebody were to send you a message and, like, trick you, like, hey, you want a MacBook? You want to get your MacBook for free? You don't, you don't want that, right? No. So, you know, companies, they'll do tests. They'll, like, test their, um, their people just to make sure, like, hey, we told you not to click on weird-looking links. <laughs> But let's send out a test and see if they'll click on a link. And there's this, there's this picture, this guy getting cra- congratulated by the CEO, <laughs> IT, IT gr- congratulating me for not failing the phishing test. And the guy's like, dear head, like, like, oh no, uh, me who doesn't open emails is what the, the picture says. <laughs> so you just ignore all your work email. You know, you won't get caught in the phishing test. How about that? Uh, yeah. Um, those are 
you've been out of the corporate for a while. It, it, that happens. We've got, I've, I've had some phishing tests <laughs> you, come have through. Have you gone through this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, like the, the email like looks like it came from, so that's one of the problems is it looks like it's legit and, and it has like, you know, the, the right third party c- company that we're using for some, some service or something. Mm-hmm. And, and you're like, wait, what is this? Uh, and um, and then the the link doesn't match up with the whatever it says it's going to and things like that. But um, it actually is harder now, I think, that to 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 verify what's real and what's not when more companies do use third third party uh, uh, services for lots of stuff. So yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's you know it's a joke, but it's it is serious. Like I worked for a company where somebody got a got a message. I think either I might have been through a hacked email account or or it was spoofed in a way that it it looked like it came from like a higher up that says, hey, there's some a really big emergency. This vendor's super upset. We didn't pay them. Uh they're kind of sue us if we don't, you know, could you quick transfer this money over to this bank account? <laughs> and because it it came from, you know, somebody who looked like they should be asking that, right? It it almost happened. So it's oh, not good. That's not good. Yeah, uh, the yeah. I get texts now. Like the, the latest one was just this weekend. I got a text or something that said said, "Hey, um, we need information about your shipping for uh, Amazon shipment or something." And it's like copy and paste this link into your browser, and it's this like bizarre <laughs> link. And I'm like, no, it would be Amazon.com something. Uh, there's no way it's yep. going to be <laughs> Bob's Bob's Burgers. Yeah. Or whatever. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, Amazon. Yeah, let's go to Amazon.com. <laughs> oh, anyway. Oh well. Well, uh, well, may may everybody get through their day without clicking on phishing emails. So yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah, may you may you pass the test. Or don't read email. Reason. Just stop reading email. Yeah. yeah, think about how productive you'll be. Well, well this was very productive, podcast. Brian. Yes, it was. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks for uh, for hanging out with me this morning. So. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being here as always. And everyone, thank you for listening. It's been a lot of fun. See you next time. Bye.